0: Welcome to Clippings, the official podcast of the Council for Nail Disorders, where Drs. April Schachtel and Catherine Stiff take a closer look at articles and clippings published on all things nail disease. Listeners can suggest articles for this podcast or topics of discussion by sending an email to kristen.cnd at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.
1: Hello, and welcome to episode 18 of the Clippings Podcast, where we review nail papers and present them to you. I'm April Schachtel, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Catherine Stiff. Hey, April. My article this month is titled, Atypical Parakeratosis in Nail Unit Squamous Cell Carcinoma. It comes from Drs. Prasad, Shields, Zhu, Aylward, and Hinshaw, and was published in the Journal of Cutaneous Pathology online ahead of print in April 2022. Squamous cell carcinoma is the most common malignancy of the nail unit, and it is more difficult to diagnose than squamous cell carcinoma in other cutaneous locations because it can mimic other causes of nail dystrophy like warts, trauma, or onychomycosis. Because of this, biopsies are often delayed and or biopsies are often too superficial and inadequate to make the diagnosis. These authors conducted a comprehensive retrospective review of nail unit squamous cell carcinomas at the University of Wisconsin and their affiliated Veterans Affairs Hospital, and they specifically included a focus on atypical parakeratosis in nail clippings and shallow non-diagnostic biopsy specimens. Atypical parakeratosis is often seen in squamous cell carcinoma, but not in warts or psoriasis. A prior study by Song and Shea in the Journal of Modern Pathology in 2010 found that the combination of nuclear area and area variability was able to differentiate most squamous cell carcinomas from psoriasis and warts, although there was some degree of overlap in the middle. Also, prior studies of pap smears done for the evaluation of cervical cancer suggests that atypical parakeratosis is an important predictor of progression to squamous cell carcinoma in the cervical mucosa. These authors searched the dermatopathology records for patients with a histopathologic diagnosis of nail unit squamous cell carcinoma and or atypical parakeratosis in the nail unit with or without a final diagnosis of squamous cell carcinoma. Atypical perikeratosis was defined as perikeratosis, a.k.a. the retention of nuclei in the cornified cell layer, with nuclear atypia, as in the nuclei were large, hyperchromatic, and may have prominent nucleoli. They ultimately found 37 cases with clinical history available, and they reviewed the available physician notes, photography, slides, and path reports. 32 of these cases were primary as opposed to five, which were recurrent squamous cell carcinoma. The most common clinical features were onycholysis, warty lesions, and subungual hyperkeratosis. Oozing and pain were common. 72% of the cases were in men, and the right thumb was the most common digit affecting 25% of cases. The most common location was the nail bed, 75% of the primary cases were well-differentiated squamous cell carcinoma, 15% were squamous cell carcinoma in situ, and 9% were moderately differentiated squamous cell carcinoma. There was no bony involvement in any of the cases. The average time to initial diagnosis overall was 57.3 months, And for the five recurrent cancers, the average delay to diagnosis was slightly less, but still long at 54.8 months. Of the cases with original biopsy specimens available, 57% showed the atypical perikeratosis. Four cases of the group specifically required multiple physician visits and multiple biopsies to reach the diagnosis. Three of those four cases had atypical perikeratosis in an initial biopsy specimen, but that specimen had been too superficial to be diagnostic of squamous cell carcinoma, leading leading to the additional biopsies. In terms of treatment, Mohs surgery was performed in 29 of 32 of the primary cases, and an average of two and a half Mohs layers were needed for clearance. Three of those 29 cases had a recurrence and 85% of the cases overall were left to heal by secondary intention. Thank you to the authors for this comprehensive retrospective review of 37 primary and recurrent nail unit squamous cell carcinomas. Their results suggest that it would be useful for dermatopathologists to evaluate for atypical parakeratosis in nail clippings and shallow biopsy specimens. If atypical parakeratosis is seen in a shallow biopsy, this would be information that could help support doing an additional biopsy, or even depending on the clinical scenario, this could eventually help make the diagnosis of nail unit squamous cell carcinoma. However, if the atypical parakeratosis is not seen, then that does not rule out squamous cell carcinoma. My other takeaway here is that the time to diagnosis for a nail unit squamous cell carcinoma is unacceptably long. And we should be biopsying more early and often to make this
0: diagnosis sooner. With regards to your article, a side note, the clinical images just reminded me again how subtle the findings can be with nail squamous cell carcinomas. And like you said, need to have a low index to biopsy. Agree. All right, Catherine, tell us what you read about. All right, this month I chose the article Evaluation of the Demographic and Clinical Features of Patients with Digital Myxoid Pseudosis in Their Response to Treatment by Drs. Guldikin et al. from Istanbul, Turkey, published June 2022 in Dermatologic Surgery. So, as we know, digital myxoid pseudosis are common tumors of the nail unit, and treatment options include surgical excision, conservative methods, laser surgery, and cryosurgery. In episode eight of the podcast, we discussed the techniques for cryosurgery and sclerotherapy. And there is no consensus for first-line treatment. In order to evaluate the demographic characteristics and treatment success rates, the authors analyzed all patients diagnosed with digital mucus pseudosis at their practice between 2013 and 2020. Treatment methods were classified as no treatment simple drainage, drainage and compression, or surgical excision. For simple drainage, the mucoid content was drained by pressing the lesion with the long metal axis of the needle after puncture with a 21-gauge sterile needle. For drainage and compression, after the drainage procedure, a sterile gauze was folded, placed on the lesion, and fixed with a medical plaster. It was replaced daily by the patient If the cyst content refilled, it was drained again using the same method, and compression bandaging was continued for 15 days. The patients treated with surgical excision were anesthetized with a distal wing block. The lesion was excised by either round excision and block excision, excision after removal of a distal flap, spindle excision, or excision after transungual approach. If methylene blue was utilized, it was injected into the distal interphalangeal joint using a 26-gauge needle to identify the peduncle, and the connection point was sutured using a 5-0 absorbable suture material. The defect was repaired with primary closure, a transposition flap, or secondary healing. 48 patients with 51 lesions were included, ages ranging from 42 to 84 years with a mean of 57 years. Most lesions were on the proximal nail fold of the fingers, as is typical for mucosis. Most lesions caused nail plate changes, such as longitudinal grooving, nail plate irregularity, distal onycholysis, and subungal hyperkeratosis. Among 51 lesions, only one was treated with simple drainage. 11 were treated with drainage, then compression. 32 with surgical excision. And seven lesions were not treated. The mean follow-up was 38 months. An initial complete response was seen in 93% of lesions treated. During follow-up, 10% recurred. And among those with follow-up photographs, the longitudinal grooving completely resolved in 82% of patients. No complications were seen after simple drainage or drainage with compression. After surgical excision, 60% of patients experienced some complication, such as mild retraction of the proximal nail fold, fingertip numbness, pain, temporary or permanent limitation of flexion of the distal interphalangeal joint, scarring at incision site, flap necrosis, and permanent nail dystrophy. The initial complete response was 100% in the 32 excised lesions compared to 73% in the 11 lesions treated with drainage and compression. There was no significant difference in recurrence rate between these two methods or between lesions treated with or without intraarticular methylene blue injection. So this study reinforces that surgical excision has the highest rates of initial complete response for the treatment of digital mucous pseudosis. However, the recurrence rates were similar to drainage with compression, and drainage with compression had fewer side effects. So if patients prefer a more conservative treatment, I would opt for first trying this method, uh, the drainage with compression, and pursuing surgical treatment only if this failed. In addition, for providers not... As comfortable with surgical excision, which is a more invasive procedure. Uh, drainage with compression is a safe and effective choice. Thanks, Catherine.
1: I agree. I think it's helpful to be able to give patients numbers about the likelihood of success for this initial complete response. And if Both approaches have a similar recurrence rate. I think a patient who recurs after the drainage and compression is going to be a lot less disappointed than the patient who recurs after surgery. So it's nice to be able to start with something less invasive and only go to more invasive if that initially fails. All right, Catherine, thank you for joining me on this episode of Clippings. I want to thank our listeners for their attention. To all of our listeners, please share this podcast with your colleagues and trainees. Let us know how we're doing and which articles you would like us to review on the show by t- contacting kristen.cnd at gmail.com or find us on Instagram and Twitter at Nail Disorders.